The first time he sees the ship, he thinks he's hallucinating again. A lone spot in the distance that promises the comforts of companionship and civilization he has long ago abandoned. But as the mast and bow materialize, sails billowing in the wind, the man rushes towards the beach to light a signal fire, sharp rocks pressing on the rough soles of his bare feet. His resilience has been rewarded. The two British privateers who anchor their boat offshore and venture onto the deserted island are astonished to find a wild man in animal skins with more beard than face, who has spent four years with rats, goats, and cats as his only company. This is not the story of Robinson Crusoe, although it is said that Daniel Defoe's literary classic of 1713 is based on its autobiographical retelling. It is a true story of Alexander Selkirk, a Scottish privateer who spent four years cast away on an island over 400 miles off the west coast of Chile. Selkirk's story is one of taking opportunities in the face of uncertainty, of having the resilience and flexibility needed to survive in fraught and dangerous circumstances. Today's world is anything but predictable. So how do we endure and even thrive in this volatile environment? I'm Rosario Lebrija Razbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a new podcast brought to you by the Picta Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Considering both the current crisis and the future more generally, today's episode investigates how the business community should approach risk and uncertainty. Joining me are author and CEO Margaret Heffernan, angel investor and entrepreneur Adrian Clark, and from Picta Wealth Management, Frank Bigler. Margaret, you're one of the world's leading thinkers on the subject of unpredictability in business. Why do you think uncertainty is so unsettling to humans? Well, uncertainty is very unsettling to humans because a huge amount of our progress has been based on our ability to predict in the very short term. So being able to predict if I run across the road now, I can get to the other side before the van runs me down. I can predict that, you know, the sun will come up and therefore I can do some kinds of tasks in the morning and some kinds of tasks in the evening. The ability uh, to discern patterns and from the patterns to be able to plan is a, just a formidable human cognitive achievement. And it's what's allowed us to invent things and then develop them and change them and manufacture them and spread them and so on. So this is, you know, this is a very, very fundamental part of being human. And in fact, you know, when I talk to neurologists, most particularly Eleanor McGuire, who's done all these fantastic studies into 
how we think about the past and how we think about the future, it becomes clear that one of the amazing things our brain does is it constantly toggles between the past, the present, and the future. So we're always thinking about, you know, where are we now? How do we get from A to B? Last time we went this way, but now we know that there's a construction site or a road traffic accident. So we're able to invent a new way for the future. So this capacity to think about and solve problems by using the three time zones in which we live is just such a fundamental part of human existence that we hardly notice that we're doing it. But then there are these things, these aspects of life where actually we don't know. We haven't been here before or we haven't been anywhere quite like this before. And so it really challenges us to use our minds and brains, and by extension, our institutions differently. So we are, on some level, creatures of habit. We like the notion uh, of finding patterns that we can build on. But there is always in life a part of life that remains, no matter how smart we are, no matter how cool the technology is, there is a part of life that remains ineradicably uncertain. And we have little experience of dealing with that. So it mostly, not completely, but mostly makes us feel very anxious and rather at sea. And we are living in one of those times right now. That's right. So so one of the things that provoked my book, I, I sort of collect nerdy data points. And I was very struck by a nerdy data point I encountered about five years ago, that the people who have studied forecasting with kind of forensic attention had concluded that accurate forecasting is really pointless um, after 400 days. And those are people, so that's the best we can do. Those are the people who really, really hone their forecasting skills. The rest of us, it's really only about 150 days at best. And then there are all those, also these things that are inherently unpredictable. And I thought, so, so, So much of our life is based on the notion that we can predict, but we can't. And if we can't, that kind of changes everything we do and how we do it. So how are we going to cope with that? And the main reason that the the window for accurate forecasting has become so much narrower is because, you know, the combination of pervasive communications technologies and globalization has taken a lot of things that used to be kind of complicated but controllable, linear, manageable, and standardizable. And it's created a whole other world that is complex, which means that, yes, there are patterns, but they don't repeat themselves regularly. It means really small things, like a virus, can have an absolutely disproportionate impact And it also means that expertise really struggles to catch up because the situation changes so fast. Nobody's completely on top of the game. And that means that we are destined to live a life where there's a lot of uncertainty around. And we aren't very well prepared for it. Our mental models of how things work Uh, don't work with it in complexity, for example, and we've seen this in real time. In complex environments where you can't predict, efficiency is a killer. 
because efficiency maximizes for, you know, better, faster, cheaper. So it, it looked really efficient. If you knew exactly what was going to happen, it could be really efficient to have low stockpiles of PPE, to have 100% occupancy of intensive care units. But if you can't predict, then efficiency kills you. And almost everything we do in institutions and organizations is driven by efficiency. So the complexity of the world, which we're really only just getting used to, challenges most of our most embedded beliefs and practices. But why are we so obsessed with efficiency? Well, we're obsessed with efficiency because in very simple or even actually quite complicated but linear processes, it delivers huge benefits. So the way I think about this is I think about flying. You know, in the old days when we used to fly, uh, you would go to the airport, you would check your bags, the plane would be loaded with food. Those are complicated but absolutely repeatable, standardizable processes. And if you do them efficiently, you save time and you save money. So efficiency works really well in that context. When you get on the plane, you have, generally speaking, four engines, and they work off of different software platforms. This is very expensive. But the reason it's like that, because the plane can fly without four engines, and it would be more efficient to have them all running the same software. But if they had the same software, a bug in one would bring the whole plane down. So it's worth the extra cost and overhead to have four engines running off of different software platforms because if one fails, you're okay. And so we're starting to see that understanding the difference between complicated and complex is really fundamental. And if you work in environments where there is uncertainty, like up in the air or in public health, and you manage it as though it is predictable with total efficiency, you could easily find yourself in a very dangerous and frightening predicament, which is exactly what has happened very sadly with the pandemic. In 404 BC, Sparta won a 27-year war against Athens that gave it an empire. Spartans had dedicated their society to the art of war. At seven years old, every boy was taken from his parents and placed in the military. They banned music, the arts, politics, money, and trade, and managed to build the most powerful infantry in the world. While their single-minded military focus made Spartans resilient in the act of war, It also made them vulnerable to uncertainty and change. They were not equipped for the influx of culture, politics, and economic challenges that their conquest would bring. As a consequence, it was only 30 years later that they lost the same territory to the Athenians again. Adrian, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came about to founding your own company, Delarki? Yes. So I guess I'd have to start with my family business, uh, which is Bacardi Limited and and is a rather large spirits company. And so, you know, I grew up in a sort of business environment, particularly around spirits and booze. And that was really a common discussion at the dinner table when I was growing up. So 
there was from an early age, there was a certain sense of sort of total immersion, not only into business, but a very specific segment of business. And um, I really sort of, I started on the path of, I guess, what we call founding my company a few years ago in university when I started doing what I guess people commonly refer to as angel investing. And I made some investments um, here and there. There was a vanity project in, <laughs> in form of a bar in Hong Kong, which actually worked out very well. And there were other, what one might describe as more sense investments that didn't. And I realized that I needed more of a process. And the time I came to this realization was the same time that I was about to graduate from university. And I was planning on moving to New York to consult for a few venture capital firms specializing in helping their portfolio companies actually achieve that go-to-market strategy and help with their raise strategies. And that's where I realized that there was a common disconnect between third-party suppliers, investors, and entrepreneurs and I wanted to build a business to help with that. And out of that came Delarkey, which I guess is a standard early stage private equity firm, but with a real focus on execution. What's your personal relationship with uncertainty and resilience as well? So I would say that my personal relationship with uncertainty is I was rather sort of beaten over the head with it um, early on in my childhood when regressively I lost my mother. And that's because as, as a kid, you don't sort of walk around thinking and worrying about the fact that one day your parents might not be there. You, you take it as an assumption, probably similar to the fact that, you know, you don't think that the house you live in is suddenly just going to get pulled from the foundations. But unfortunately, that's what happened. And so I would say that, you know, confronted with the rather grotesque side of uncertainty and almost blindsided by it, I then worked in many areas of my life to not only get comfortable with uncertainty or rather known unknowns, but learn to minimize them where can and accept them where one can't. So would some people call you a control freak? That term has been thrown around, but I like <laughs> to think it's only ever been thrown around affectionately. What are the differences between entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial management, in your opinion? I would say that entrepreneurship is really the practice of starting businesses, of, of creating something out of nothing. And entrepreneurial management is essentially learning to manage um, sometimes a small, sometimes a large number of people in a very unknown and fast-paced environment where one can't rely on a lot of the nice frameworks that one learns at business school, for example. And the reason why I think it's important to perhaps make that decision, distinction rather, is because often there are people who are terrific entrepreneurs and very good at starting businesses, very good at the vision, even very good at fundraising and selling, but they absolutely make terrible managers day to day mm. and there are um, I would say a, a rare people that can do both very well yeah I would I would completely agree with that and I think you know as an entrepreneur I was much better at the starting up phase and when you get to the point where you have to scale and you need to introduce processes I was kind of bored out of my mind and it was the point at which I typically would find somebody who really really loved doing that because it's a completely different mindset Uh, and it's so important for people who found companies to understand where their strengths lie. Because I have definitely, I know many entrepreneurs who have grown as the company's grown. It's an extraordinary transformation to watch. But many people aren't in themselves that adaptable. So that's where resilience comes in. Well, I think it's resilience, but it's also, um, it's knowing your strengths. And it's also understanding as an entrepreneur that ultimately what you have to do is serve the business. That's the job. You need to be the leader the business needs. And you have to recognize if you're not and find somebody who is. 
Yes, I'd agree with that. Um, you guys are all perhaps familiar with the um, startup nomenclature of, you know, it's it's my baby or the founder's baby. And uh, rather gruffly, I always say I, I never call any of my startups my babies because I would be quite afraid to drown my baby in the river. And yeah, that sort of <laughs> that, that rather sort of possessive complex. When it's a red flag whenever a founder's um, identity is so tied to that business. And the founders that I've worked with, who I think are certainly the best, are ones that their identity is far more attached to their framework for starting businesses and sometimes managing them than the particular business themselves. Because most entrepreneurs are really looking for an exit and at some point down the line, particularly if they're taking institutional capital because they all have fund cycles which promise return to investors after five to seven years. And it's very few entrepreneurs that will start something and then build it into a multinational company a la sort of the Zuckerberg Facebook model. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's quite interesting. So, you know, my tech businesses were all built in the States. And I think my general experience of British entrepreneurs is they're so focused on the exit that they don't build, they rarely build great companies that last. And I think it's a loss. I think it's a loss for them and for the economy, you know, that too many of the the British entrepreneurs that I work with and mentor, you know, they look for the exit before they're even through the door. And that's not to say that all companies have long-lived glorious futures, but I think there's a sort of lack of ambition, which, you know, and many great ideas deserve ambition. And, you know, Margaret, I, I love that you're bringing disagreement into this because I found, <laughs> no, I, I, I found one of your, your most fascinating ideas to be this uh, need for different opinions and, and for us to step out of our comfort zones. I, I, that is a big premise of willful ignorance, right? Well, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I do have a sort of core belief that when you get groups of people together, the most valuable thing you can do is explore the things you don't understand or we don't agree because that's what we're all going to learn from. Whereas talking to somebody who agrees with me 100%, A, it's boring, B, I'm not going to learn anything, and C, what's the point? You know, I could just stay at home as I am doing now and talk to myself, right? And I think in, in leadership of organizations, you know, and I've run tiny organizations and huge ones, I think that the, creating the environment in which that kind of conflict can be constructive is absolutely the main job. Because businesses, you know, businesses are based on the assumption that groups of people together can solve more problems better with more solutions than individuals alone. But that is only true to the degree that they can think differently together, that they can argue together, and that they can co-create things that they couldn't do alone. And if everybody's agreeing, none of that stuff happens. Adrian, how do you step away from bias? Well, I think that fundamentally, and I would I'd argue Margaret's already made this point, but um, you need to avoid an echo chamber at all costs. And so I fundamentally actively hire and look for people who disagree with me. And often even when they, and often even when they disagree, we end up, we, it, it might be actually in terms of form rather than practice, we'll be arguing about something very passionately. And then we realize that actually we agree entirely, except for this one perhaps minute and often immaterial detail. 
But uh, I'm even a big fan of, of the Socratic method at work. And so I, I always say you can disagree with anything you like, but you better have the arguments to, to back it up and certainly not put yourself in a position, particularly as an entrepreneur um, and a founder where, you know, you decide that your word is gospel or you sort of rule the company proceedings just because you happen to be the person that started it or put up the capital and so forth. Frank, in a big bank like Big Te, that, you know, is very hierarchical, how do you avoid falling into these types of biases as well? Well, I think it would be a bit arrogant to say that we don't. <laughs> uh, we, uh, what, what, what I, you know, being part of a sort of a corporation, what, what, what I see and witness every day, be it with my colleagues or, or even with our clients is, I think there's, when I look at it, there's three reactions to the un uncertainty, right? There's, There's obviously the, the first one, which is the, the total surprise and people are not prepared and they, they lack the experience, they lack the knowledge and, and they freeze, right? And, and that's, that happens every day and that happens, you know, at the start of a, of a crisis like we had in, in some places, people just don't understand and they totally freeze and they don't know how to react. And, and it's a very costly outcome because you, usually you, you don't know how to handle the, the situation and, and what you have not invested in managing the risk before and then you pay a very high price at the moment it happens right and then as, as you build on knowledge and experience people start to try to forecast predict budget build plans contingency plans and that starts to have some cost, and therefore it's also helping you when things get a bit ugly and then we had a pretty decent reaction in, in, in most of what happened recently and, and we, we could manage it because we had contingency plans in Asia for our business in Asia and stuff like that. So that works. But I think where the strengths really lies in the long run is when, when you go beyond planning and, and when actually it's more of your core values that makes you resilient. It's when Because of your long history, because of your understanding of what's happening out there and the multiple crises you went through, financial crises and others, where you certainly build a culture as a corporation that intrinsically manages risk. And when I think about a bank like Picte, which is a rather conservative bank, we pay the price of our conservatism, our, you know, we, we strongly believe in, in the strength of our balance sheet and so on. We pay the price of it at the peak of the cycle because a lot of our clients will say, you know what, you don't have these exotic products that help me make that last little uh, return. And, 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 and we, we stick to our very strong processes and strong beliefs in how to invest for the long run. And we lose clients when complacency is there. We lose opportunities of businesses. Now, the reality is when things go really bad like they do right now, Yes, we suffer in the short run because it obviously pressures our business and, and it's a cost and it's difficult. But we also see the benefit of the strong values we have around managing that risk for the long run. And I think that's the third layer. It's when your, your, your values, your morale, your education, your knowledge brings you to understand these things. And, and I think when you look around the world with the epidemic, you've got a certain reflection of those situations. You know, you look at how Germany has been able to manage the pandemic or you look at maybe countries that have been less prepared. It's, it's not that people were better at planning or people had better reaction. It's, I think you've got the values of how people think and plan about society and things were, were different, you know, and, and, and what was a very costly setup of having a decentralized hospitalization system in Germany became very valuable today. 
while most of the people in other places would have said, you know what, this is this is a crazy course. Why do you have all these hospitals around the country? Centralized, it's so much more efficient. Just to go back to, to Margaret's yeah. point about efficiency. And you see that, right? And and, and you see the outcome is different. Um, so it's not it's not planning, it's it's more sort of I think the, the ultimate resilience is when you actually have that ingrained in your values and philosophy as a corporation, as a country, or as a person. I completely agree. I'm so moved by what you say, because one of the things I wrote about in my book was was um, what happened to Baring's Bank, you know, when it suddenly found itself with no cash. And one of the people I interviewed for that was the head of corporate finance. And the head of corporate finance for Baring's was kind of the jewel in the crown. And that entire group of people, very brilliant people, stayed with Barings when it was sold to ING. And the year after their crisis were yet again voted the most trusted corporate finance firm in the city of London. And when I asked them, you know, how did they do that? How did they get through this very profound crisis with, among other things, headhunters circling everywhere? How did they get through it as an absolutely unified team? They said it was because of the values and the relationships that they had all shared and grown up with together in that firm. And I think it's really important to appreciate that in business, yes, in a crisis, cash is king. But, you know, there's capital and then there's social capital. And the social capital, so norms of generosity and reciprocity and trust, deliver powerfully in moments of crisis to a degree that many efficient managers fail to appreciate. And one of the people I talked to on this subject about how that really tight social fabric in an organization gets organizations through crises said, you know, it's really the opposite of the gig economy. It's acting as if people matter. And that consistent value in everything you do and how you make decisions has this extraordinary capacity to strengthen people when the whole system is under pressure. In Europe's long history, Switzerland has always held a strategic military position and inevitably has regularly been surrounded by war. The uncertainty that comes with conflict, however, taught it to thrive in chaos. In the aftermath of the French Revolution, when Napoleon Bonaparte invaded France's neighbors and the European economy collapsed, an interesting thing happened. While Swiss trade was inevitably affected and businesses failed, a number of innovative startups emerged that rebuilt the country and are still alive today. The Bicta Group is one of these. Adrian, what do you think are some current companies that have taken advantage of uncertainty? I can give a shout out to the spirits industry slightly biasedly in that they've they've pivoted rather heavily into hand sanitizer. Some although there's there are different there are different incentives pushing them in that direction, admittedly. <laughs> um, and you know, to the to the point about uncertainty, there's there's obviously a lot of uncertainty floating around, but, but certainly certain financial institutions and certain hedge fund managers have done very well. Because um to sort of Frank's point about, you know, you can't dismiss um, the projection and you and you, you can't discount fear. 
and this, that, and the other. I think that's that's quite right. I think the key thing is you you can't essentially fight the market. The market will react, and you can you can call everyone out, but it's it's really the the single commonality is the companies that have proved nimble in reacting and also take it upon themselves to establish their own timeline for operations rather than I would say heading for the hills, which is what a lot of my counterparts are currently doing, to just sort of tools down and going to cash. And I, you know, I, I mean, I would say a couple of things. I would say that, you know, if there were laws of business that worked as well as, you know, things like the laws of gravity or laws of physics, then this would be a cinch. And the truth is that there are patterns. And if you follow the patterns, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, which is why it's so hard. Because I think what you see in a crisis is some companies reinvent themselves with astounding speed and accelerate out of a crisis. And you also see companies that absolutely double down on who they are and what they are. And they just stick to their knitting and they come out of it stronger than ever. I think what's really interesting is the ones who kind of try to do a bit of both end up being dazed and confused. So I think there is an issue around, you know, and we talked about this earlier, Frank talked about it, you know, really knowing who you are and what you're about. But I think there's another, you know, issue we have to be really clear about, which is the people who are in this crisis making out like bandits are making out like bandits. And this is a very dangerous moment in a very unequal world for it to be seen and celebrated that there's money to be made out of human suffering. And I think the long-term consequences of that are impossible to price, but very risky. Wow, that is a that is a strong point to follow. I think we all need to reflect on that, definitely. Well, to wrap up the conversation, I'd just like to ask each one of you, what would be your key lessons to CEOs who want to build resilience into their business? Maybe you want to start, Adrian? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I'm, I'm qualified to be advising many of the CEOs, particularly in times of today, but... Um... I think the the key thing is whatever the models and the data shows and, and whatever the conventional wisdom is, one one should not necessarily toss that out, but this is a time to really reflect on its limitations and also assume accountability for the decision making process. You know, it's it's not their fault they're in this current position and having to essentially, you know, make maybe more transformational um, decisions for their business at this particular time, but That is the job they signed up for when, when they signed on. So it's, I think, first of all, accountability, and secondly, acknowledging the limitations of their current practices in an uncertain environment. I would say a couple of things. I think CEOs who go into a crisis with high levels of trust and social capital will come out of it stronger. I think those who went into it without that are really going to suffer And it's a difficult moment to try to build that social capital, but if you can, you should. It's a, necessarily, it's a moment for experimentation to see what else you and your people are capable of and um, what fresh thinking you can find and make sure you look everywhere in the organization, not only at the top layer, 
because often the best ideas are going to come from quite a long way down. There's always more knowledge at the edge than at the center. And the other thing I would say from my own experience is, in a strange way, it's much easier to lead in a crisis because everybody knows you know, what the priority is, which is stay alive. You know, not just yourself, obviously, but, you know, keep the business alive. And that's profoundly motivating. You don't have to worry about staff engagement surveys anymore. You know, everybody knows what the big, big, big overwhelming goal is. So what matters is that they feel supported, that they feel it's possible, and that the kinds of experiments and ideas that they come up with have room to breathe because you absolutely, as a leader, have no idea where the best idea is going to come from. And you need, in a crisis, as many as you can find. I think it's a great opportunity for anyone who is in a leadership position to demonstrate leadership today. I think it's that's that's the moment if there is one. What I would think when I think about what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do and, and other people around me is we, we need to know who we are as a business and, and what we want to stand for. And this is very important right now. You, you need to stay very focused. You also need to see what it will be the outcome because being freezed will not help you. You need to look out and, and see what is going to be the, the outcome of this and how can you, can, you can build on this. But then what is equally important, if maybe even more, is to communicate a lot across the company, talk to people, be close to them. In, in those moments, transparency communication is, is, is what helps the most because people, there's too much information circling around that is not clear or people speculate or whatsoever so communicate a lot and stay very close to your people I think that's what I, I would do you know I, I, I try to call my my teams every day and trying to know how they are how they feel and I think that that makes a difference because we, we build that bound now that will be very useful when we go out of it Thanks to all our guests on this week's episode of Founding Conversation. Margaret Heffernan, Adrian Clark, and Frank Bigler. Margaret's new book, Uncharted, How to Map the Future, is out now. This series is brought to you by the Bigta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev and Vasily Christodoulou with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>